Hey, Northerners, and welcome to the first episode of the Northern Blood Podcast. I am your host, Jen. This will be the voice you hear for every single episode. Um, And today's case is going to be a tough one to hear, but it is a case that I think that everybody should hear, uh, especially this day and age with um, the kind of the cyber bullying that's going on, the bullying. I feel like it is exponentially tenfold from what it was with this case. So without further ado, this is the case of Rena Virk. Hi Northerners, a listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Northern Blood podcast. Listener discretion is advised. took place in 1997 in a place called Saanich, which is a municipality on Vancouver Island. This is the story of bullying, racism, torture, and eventual murder of a 14-year-old Rena Verk. Before I continue with the details, you should know that six of the eight perpetrators were under the age of 16 during the crime, so therefore, they have never been named in the media. They are only known by some initials on some documents. During this episode, I will only be referring to two main people who were tried as adults, and they will be named. Saanich, British Columbia is a beautiful place on Vancouver Island that is situated at the south end of the island. It is a beautiful community that is the eighth most popular place on the island. It is also known for its long shorelines and sandy beaches. It is only accessible by ferry or airplane and has a super relaxed vibe about it. Manjeet Virk originally is from New Delhi in India. He immigrated to Saanich to start a new life in 1979. He moved in with his sister when he first arrived, and he lived there for a while. But shortly after arriving in Canada, he met his future wife, Suman. They quickly were smitten and started a life together. It was not an easy to start the relationship as Suman was Hindu, but also practiced the Jehovah Witness faith, while Manji was of the Sikh faith. The two were married June 11, 1979, only two months after Manjeet immigrated to Canada. They had their first child, Rina, on March 10, 1983. Rina means queen in Hindi and Punjabi. Two years later, another little girl, Simran, was born, and in 1988, a son, Aman, was born. Manjeet took his family back home to India to show them some of their culture and experience things they hadn't before. Suman, you see, was also born in Canada, so she had never experienced it either. At this age, Rena had started to act up, acting out in school. Rena was being bullied at school and had been for a few years. She was acting out and didn't want to go to school. Her classmates would make fun of her for looking different than the other kids. Whether it was her skin color, her thick hair, or how she looked, kids were relentless on the bullying. In 1994, the family moved and changed schools, and the parents thought that maybe, just maybe, that would change things. But Rena kept getting bullied, even at the new school. She got called ugly, fat, they made fun of her hair, she got called the bearded lady. It was awful. Rena kept so much of the bullying to herself and from her parents, they truly didn't know how bad it had gotten. Rena had finally made a few friends, and they watched movies, and they hung out, and things like that. They would sometimes go to a place called Rudd Park in the evenings as well. 
One night, she went to Red Park to meet her friends, but instead ran into a different group of kids who were smoking cigarettes that night. She stayed out way past her curfew that night, as finally the cool kids had accepted her. Suman and Manjeet were worried by this new behavior Rena was omitting now, that she was hanging out with this group of kids. They were drinking and doing drugs, and Rena's parents were very worried that she would go down the wrong path due to mere acceptance. One of these new friends suggested that if she didn't want to live with her parents anymore, all she had to do was tell social services that she was being abused and they would take her away from her parents. Problem solved. So Rena did just that. They didn't press charges as there was no evidence, but she ended up with her paternal grandmother. Rena made horrible sexual abuse claims against her own father, which absolutely devastated him. In January of 1997, Manjeet was arrested for sexual abuse of Rena, put in jail, awaiting arraignment. He was ordered to have no contact with his oldest daughter while a trial was being set to happen in July of 1997. Rena then changed her tune and was alleging she was not safe with her grandparents either and was moved to a foster home. This ended up not being what she thought it would be, and eventually people started to see through Rena's lies. Eventually, the charges against Manjeet were dropped and Rena came home. Her apology was barely that and basically stated, I'm so sorry, Dad. I didn't do it on purpose. I'm sorry. Rena was smoking and hanging out with a tough crowd still. She was dressing like a gangster, listening to rap music, none of which was okay with her parents. She was claiming she was in a gang. In October of 1997, Rena wanted to go back to the foster care again, so she left home and went to the Kiwanis Emergency Youth Shelter for three days. This is where she met a couple of girls who are called J and D and would play a part in Rena's murder. The girls took advantage of Rena's low self-esteem and began getting her to do things for them. Rena was a big girl in stature, but that didn't matter. She wouldn't stand up to these girls as she was finally accepted. The girls would threaten her all the time. They pushed her around. They would take her clothes off of her just to torture her and see her dignity disappear. On Halloween 1997, Rena invited her friends to her house while her parents were out, and Suman had $500 go missing and Manjeet's video camera went missing. When they confronted Rena, she admitted that she had had friends over and that the Verks pressed charges. Rena kept up her lies and was saying her father was cutting her, showing people previous suicide attempt scars and ended up in the youth shelter again. On November 14, 1997, Rena was supposed to stay with her parents for a visit, but a friend named Jay called her and told her to come out and have some Friday night fun. So Rena went out instead. When Rena didn't come home for her 11 p.m. curfew, Suman assumed Rena had gone to her grandma's house. Rena had called at 10:40 p.m. to check in with her parents and say, "I'm on my way home." Suman called the shelter, but they told her that she had they hadn't seen Rena. There was no sign of her. The Verks called the police the very next morning, but because of Rena's track record, they were hesitant to report her as missing. Rumors were spreading around town. In the schools, there was a dead girl in the gorge by the Craigflower Bridge. Police caught on to these rumors and started to search, and they looked everywhere until they finally discovered a semi-nude body in the weeds. At 5 p.m. on November 15, 1997, the police got a photo of Rena Verk for an ID match, and at 2 a.m., the Verks were told that it was Rena they had found. Rena had been involved in two separate fights, and drowning was her cause of death. A 15-year-old girl named Kelly Ellard and a 16-year-old boy named Warren Glowatsky were bragging about killing Rena at school. They were arrested for the second-degree murder of Rena Verk, as well as six other girls were charged with aggravated assault. A week before Rena's death, she had called a boy that she went to school with 
She called him a ton of times in one day. She told him she liked him. However, he didn't know who she was. She asked him if he could come meet her at the Max convenience store, and he agreed to meet her, so she would just stop calling. She waited for him for hours, and he never showed up. That same boy told Jay about everything, and she told this boy that Rena had stolen her contact book and was calling everyone that Jay knew. Jay told this boy, don't worry, Rena won't be bothering you anymore. And he had no idea what that meant until he saw her body was found on the news. The rumors were flying about all the things Rena had said about Jay and the anger began to rise in her. Jay was caught talking on the phone to a friend and about digging a grave and putting a girl in it and the chat went on and on about how they would push this girl in the hole and bury her alive. When Jay got off the phone, her mom asked who she was talking to and Jay said it was Kelly Ellard. That next week at school, Kelly Ellard was telling everyone she was going to beat Rena up for messing with Jay. It was Jay who called Rena that night to come have some Friday fun. She was hesitant to go at first, but eventually she went out and met them. They drank, they smoked, they had some typical teen fun. The party got out of hand around 8.30 p.m. and one boy had thrown a rock at school and the police came to break it up. Kids scattered in different directions. A group went to the Craigflower Bridge and some went to the other Mac store. And this is where Rena called her mom to say she was on her way home. Jay told Rena to come under the bridge for one last smoke. She went down under the bridge and actually linked arms with Jay and another girl. Once under the bridge, everyone was standing in a circle and smoking. And that's where Jay confronted Rena about all the things she had been saying about her at school. Then she took a cigarette that she was smoking, stubbed it in Rena's face. The fight broke out immediately, and Rena was swarmed by seven girls and one boy all at once. Rena was viciously kicked and beaten by the entire group. Rena moaned, I'm sorry, but the attack continued. Then another boy had pulled Warren Glowatsky off of Rena, and the five other girls backed off as well, leaving only Kelly Allard and one other girl. They got tired eventually and took a break. Rena tried to escape. She was staggering across the bridge in an attempt to get home. Kelly and Warren were smoking and talking, and Kelly suggested they finish her off. The pair decided to run after her, and they began savagely beating her again. Kelly Ellard grabbed Rena's face and rammed it into a tree several times, and they began stomping on her and kicking her viciously. When Rena was unconscious, they dragged her down to the water and took her pants off. They placed Rena in the water face down, and Kelly Ellard took turns either holding her face underwater or standing on her body in the water. Warren cheered her on and watched as Rena took her final breaths. They watched her float away in the water and then walked back to the bridge together and went their separate ways. Kelly ran into someone she knew at the top of the bridge and asked him for a smoke because she was stressed out. She told him she held a girl's head underwater until she drowned. The boy noticed Kelly looked wet. The talk started at school the next day and eventually a witness came to the police saying they had seen the first part of the fight with Kelly and Warren following Rena. Police arrested Kelly Ellard and Warren Glowatsky the day before Rena's body was found, charging them with the murder and aggravated assault. Six other girls known as the Shoreline Six were also picked up and charged with aggravated assault. Rena had been savagely beaten. There was bruising under her eyes, her lips were split open, there were red marks on her shoulders and collarbone, all consistent with someone standing on her in the water. There was a cigarette burn on her face by her left eyebrow. On the back of her head was a shoe print, and shoe print bruises on her back. Rena's internal organs were so badly battered that the coroner compared it to a fatal car crash victim. There was evidence of internal bleeding. Rena's brain was swollen and hemorrhaged. 
There was a sneaker mark shaped bruise on the brain itself. There was a white foamy substance in her lungs indicating she drowned. Rena was alive when she was dragged into the water. On February 9th, 1999, three of the Shoreline Six pled guilty to the lesser charge of assault causing bodily harm on Rena Virk. The other three girls went on trial and they were also convicted of assault causing bodily harm. Their sentences ranged from 60 days to one year behind bars. Their identities have remained protected even after all these years due to the Young Offenders Act. On April 12, 1999, Warren Glowoski was put on trial as an adult for the second degree murder of Rena Burke. He testified himself, but the judge didn't buy what he was saying in the trial. The judge said, on the whole, Warren Glowoski's evidence was conveniently incomplete and probable. I did not believe it. It was said on multiple occasions he had admitted to killing Rena in a quote-unquote 187 with Kelly Allard, which is the LA County code for murder and it's used in rap songs. Warren Glowoski was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after serving seven years. He was 16 at the time, and he went to a federal adult prison. Kelly Ellard had been telling the whole world that she had murdered Rena Virk to anyone who would listen. Once she was in custody, she said she had nothing to do with the murder. On May 13, 1999, appeals to try Kelly as a young offender were thrown out. She was tried as an adult. Kelly's friends shared how Kelly was proud of what she'd done to Rena. The jury found Kelly guilty and sentenced her to life in prison, and she had to serve at least five years before applying for parole. On February 4, 2003, Kelly won an appeal to have a new trial. It was determined that the prosecution had asked her 18 times what others would lie about her. This resulted in an unfair trial. She was released on bail pending her retrial after serving only 18 months. Shortly after being released, she was drinking with a 19-year-old friend and a 58-year-old woman that they had invited to a New Westminster park. Once in the park, they accused this woman of stealing their phones and in turn beat her horribly. They were charged with assault causing bodily harm. In March 2004, Allard's bail was revoked and she was put back in jail. On June 13, 2004, Kelly Allard's second trial began. During this trial, they heard from the coroner who performed Rena's autopsy and said Virk would have been unconscious and in so much pain she wouldn't have been able to move. And if she wouldn't have drowned, she likely wouldn't have survived her brain injury. Kelly testified and said that she had punched Rena but denied the murder. She said that Warren and two other girls had killed Rena. She claimed that she had left to go wait for the bus. She claimed Warren had said that he, he would pay girls to spread rumors that Kelly Ellard had murdered Rena. The jury deliberated for five days and came back deadlocked. In July 2004, the judge declared a mistrial and had to decide if they would try Kelly Ellard for a third time. In February 2005, Kelly Ellard was tried for a third time for murder. This time, Warren Glowatsky was the star witness in the trial. He was still serving time, but he shared details of how the first assault went and how he and Kelly followed Rena under the bridge and murdered her. This time, the jury found Kelly Ellard guilty of a second-degree murder of Rena Virk. On September 5, 2008, the BC Court of Appeals overturned Kelly's murder charge. They ordered a fourth trial on the grounds that the judge in the third trial gave them the jury false instructions over testimony. This time, it went to the Supreme Court of Canada, and they reinstated her second-degree murder charge. On June 23, 2010, Warren Glowatsky was released on parole and has since apologized to the family. 
In October 2016, Kelly Ellard, who has changed her name to Carrie Sim, and now she was eight months pregnant in jail after a conjugal visit with her boyfriend, who is now in jail. In January 2017, Kelly, or Carrie, applied for a parole as she claimed she needed to go to medical appointments and taking parenting programs. She had finally admitted on record that she had beaten Rena and held her head under the water. The parole board denied her parole at the time. However, in November 2017, she was granted conditional day parole. And in June 2018, sadly, Suman, Rena's mom, passed away due to a tragic choking incident. So as of January 2019, Kelly has been living in a halfway house and working in marketing for the halfway home. The youth shelter that Jay and Rena met was shut down shortly after the murder and it never was reopened. This is such a tragic case of bullying and unfortunately it still happens today. And now we have social media as a way to do this. So just remember, if you are young, old, if you are being bullied, please tell someone. Don't keep it inside. You are not alone. Please, please tell someone. Until next time, Northerners, stay safe. Thank you so much for listening. Every case I talk about is so important and deserves the attention. If you could kindly share this podcast with your friends, that would be amazing. If this is the first time you're listening to Northern Blood, thank you. I would love for you to go give our show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Now stay safe.